0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can open them to Psalm 139. We're going to be looking at Psalm 139 this morning, the first 12 verses. We will concentrate specifically on verses 7 through 12, but we're going to read the first 12 verses. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, you should be able to locate a Bible uh, in one of the seats in front of you, uh, underneath the chairs, and Psalm 139 can be found on page 300. So Psalm 139 this morning, the first 12 verses. And when you find your place, let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. To the choir master, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated. I recently had the privilege of speaking to students uh, involved in Cruz Greek ministry on Ball State's campus at the invitation of Eric Fultz. Uh, Eric, thank you. Um, Eric actually asked me to speak last fall, and due to my schedule, I had to decline. So when Eric asked me again in December of last year if I'd be available to speak uh, on February the 8th, I gladly accepted. Now, I had also promised to attend Yorktown's father-daughter dance with my daughter, Miriam. And it wasn't until about a week before that dance, when I was talking to my wife, Stacy about my need to be on campus on the evening of February the 8th that she informed me that I wasn't gonna be able to do that because that happened to be the same night as the father-daughter dance. Now my immediate reaction was one of panic because I couldn't think of any way to honorably break either of those commitments. But I couldn't be in two places at the same time. You've all been there, right? face-to-face with this finite limitation of only being able to be in one place at one time when you needed to be in two. Now, fortunately, the dance was early, and I was speaking later in the evening, and so I could do both. I didn't have to be in two places at the same time, which is good, because I can't be in two places at one time. But think about this. God can And not only can God be in two places at the same time, God is actually present in all places at all times. A divine attribute or perfection that we call his omnipresence. And in Psalm 139 here, we see David singing of his ever-present shepherd king, especially in verses 7 through 12. And so this morning, we're going to contemplate God's omnipresence. And doing so helps us see something of God's greatness and his glory, but it also has important implications for us and for our lives. And so to do this, to contemplate God's omnipresence, we're going to look at three things. We're going to start with the belief in God's omnipresence, and then we'll consider the burden of God's omnipresence, and then we'll conclude with some comments about the benefits that flow from God's omnipresence. So those, those three points this morning, beginning with the belief in God's omnipresence. So what does it mean that God is omnipresent? Well, God's omnipresence actually belongs to a broader category of God's infinity. God is infinite. See, we are finite with creaturely limitations. We experience these creaturely limitations, but our creator is infinite. He is without limitations, and he he is without limitations with regard to time and we refer to this as his eternality. He is without limits with regard to time. He is eternal. But he's also without limits with regard to space. So this means that God cannot be contained or measured in terms of spatial dimensions. He is immeasurable. We see Solomon mentioning this in his prayer at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. Solomon prays this, Behold, heaven is, and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So God is immeasurable, but omnipresence means more than just God is not and cannot be subject to the limits of space. It's more positive than that. Omnipresence stresses positively that he's present everywhere, occupying every part of created space. It's not just he can't be measured, he's present everywhere. We could say this, God is personally present in every square inch of created space. This is his omnipresence, personally present in every square inch of created space. Now this is in contrast to deists who believe that there's a God, but who stress his absence from what he has created. God created it, but now he's absent from that. He's no longer personally present But it's also distinct from pantheists who identify God with the stuff that he's created. Pantheists believe that God exists in and through the space that he's created. But contrary to both of these things, the Bible holds that God occupies all space with his presence and yet remains distinct from the space that he's created. He occupies all that space but remains distinct from it. Theologian Michael Horton says this, the Christian faith insists against those who push God out of this world, deists, and those who regard him as indistinguishable from it, pantheists, or indwelling it somehow, panentheists, that the God who is present everywhere is nevertheless distinct from the cosmos he has made. Some like, somewhat like the water that's saturating a sponge remains distinct from the sponge itself. So God doesn't exist in space or through space. He exists in himself, but all things do exist in him. As Paul declares to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, interestingly, quoting a Greek poet when he says, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. But at the same time, it's careful That we understand this, that God is not the space in which all things are located. Because God's not a place. He doesn't have spatial dimensions. Nor should we understand God as being somehow diffused throughout all of space. With one part of him here and one part of him there. As if he's just huge. Because huge, after all, is a relative spatial term. (laughs) To describe something as huge is spatial And God cannot be measured in spatial dimensions. He is beyond being able to be understood or measured that way. Listen to how Wayne Grudem describes all of this. He says, We should guard against thinking that God extends infinitely far in all directions so that he himself exists in a sort of infinite, unending space. Nor should we think that God is somehow a bigger space or bigger area surrounding the space of the universe as we know it. All of these ideas continue to think of God's being in spatial terms, as if he were simply an extremely large being. Hey, Adrian, if I forget to advance this, will you advance it for me? Because what I have is different than I think what's written there. Um, I don't think we're ready to advance it yet, though. Um, So all of these ideas continue to think of God's being in spatial terms as if He were simply an extremely large being. Instead, we should try to avoid thinking of God in terms of size or spatial dimensions. God is a being who exists without size or dimensions in space. In fact, before God created the universe, there was no matter or material, so there was no space either. Yet, God still existed. Where was God? He was not in a place that we would call where, for there was no where or space, but God still was. This fact makes us realize that God relates to space in a far different way than we do or than any created thing does. If you got a good night's sleep and you're paying attention and you're reflecting on that, you should probably be filled with a sense of awe in thinking about that, a sense of awe, thinking about this omnipresence. C.S. Lewis says this, looking for God in space is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters. Shakespeare is in one sense present at every moment in the play. God is related to the universe more as an author is related to a play than as one object in the universe is related to another. Movement in space will never bring you any nearer to him or any farther from him than you are at this very moment. Now, that might raise a question, though. I know contemplating on that alone um, is worthy of the next 10 minutes, but um, it does probably bring a question to our mind, though, about passages that speak of being far from God, like Jeremiah 2.5, thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? Or it makes us wonder about Jonah trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. What would that mean? Why does the Bible talk that way? Well, often the Bible uses the phrase the presence of the Lord in a figurative way to represent God's favor. And his disfavor is represented by his withdrawal. Sometimes this language Is God turning his face toward someone in favor or toward turning his face away from someone in disfavor? This is exactly what we see in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 with hell being the ultimate judgment. Listen to how those in hell are described here in um, verse 9. They will be punished with everlasting destruction And shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. But it's not so much that God is not present in hell. What we see in Psalm 139 is David declares that if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. It's that what's completely lacking in hell is any part of God's favor. His face is turned away in disfavor but it's not so much that he's not present there. Another way we can kind of understand this figurative language of the presence of the Lord in scripture is that we all know by our own experience that there's a difference between physical presence and loving presence or affectionate presence. Sometimes a spouse emotionally is withdrawn or absent or checks out of a marriage long before that spouse physically leaves. There's a difference between those things. And so what it's important for us to understand is what separates us from God is never location. He's omnipresent. We can't be separated from him that way. What separates us from God is an ethical separation. It's our sin. This is exactly what Isaiah 59:2 says. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Finally, uh, we need to understand that the belief in God's omnipresence doesn't deny that he manifests himself, his presence, his character, and his glory in distinct or special ways. I mean, think about God's presence at the burning bush when he confronts Moses. That's a special manifestation of his presence. Think of the presence of the Lord especially connected to the temple or the tabernacle uh, in the Old Testament or his habitation in Zion. Uh, We can think of the supreme and unique presence of the divine in the person of Jesus, or his special presence at the Lord's Supper. So God doesn't manifest his presence in the exact same way in all places. Indeed, we can think of heaven as a place where his glory and his presence is distinctively manifested. And yet, even in light of that, he is personally present at all places at all times, because he's omnipresent and we could all this morning say yeah we believe in divine omnipresence we have a belief in God's omnipresence but do we really believe it do we believe it to the degree that it makes a difference in how we live or do we still live and think as if there's some places some things that we can keep hidden from God whether those are our thoughts our words our actions. And why would we want to hide certain things from God anyway? Why would we want to live as if we can hide things from God? Well, that brings us to the second thing, and that's the burden of God's omnipresence. You see, here's an important truth. A sinful heart loathes the divine attributes. A sinful heart loathes God and his perfections, loathes his holiness, his righteousness, his sovereignty, and that includes his omnipresence. Why would a sinful heart loathe divine omnipresence? Because our fallen instinct is to try to cover up our sin and hide the reality of our love for sin. That's our fallen instinct, to try to cover and hide from our sinfulness and our shame. This is what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He says, the light has come into the world And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Isn't this exactly what Adam and Eve did right at the beginning after the fall in the garden? They tried to hide from God and they tried to cover their guilt and their shame with fig leaves, with fig leaves. And just like them, we try to protect ourselves from exposure from our sin and the resulting shame and guilt that that brings. Isn't this why we really hate being stared at? Think about that. Psychologically, why do we hate being stared at? And and let's be clear, there are subtle, often unspoken, but very clear rules societally as to how long you can look at somebody. I'm mean, just test this out. Next time you're at a stoplight, pull up to someone else who stopped there. And you, even try, you, can even, you can even test this. Pull up window to window. Because I've noticed that that itself can be viewed as kind of a confrontational action to just directly line up windows and then turn your head and stare at them <laughs> until the light changes. Now, they may not even... No, you're staring at them because there's this unspoken rule that you just don't look at people who've pulled up window to window in traffic but if they do see you staring don't look away just keep staring see you all know what I'm talking about there's this unspoken rule no one likes to be stared at so much so someone could be so offended by simply looking at them for a prolonged period of time that it could produce a road rage incident right I mean it's a threatening thing And this applies to people who we're close to. It applies to the confines of our home, people that we live with. If you stare at them too long, there's a fence taken. Everybody hates it. But why? Why don't we like being stared at? Is there something deep down that we fear will be exposed if people are staring at us that we would rather keep hidden? There's something deep down in us That's fearful of that. And as successful as we may be in hiding our sin, our shame, our guilt, and our fear from others, whether that's putting on a lot of makeup, whether that's covering ourselves with clothes, whether that's closing our blinds, closing our curtains, whether that's receding into darkness, whether that's choosing to live a life of seclusion and withdrawal and isolation, whatever that is, regardless of how successful you may be in hiding things that you don't want others to know from others, The burden of God's omnipresence is you can't hide anything from his ever-present gaze. Can't hide anything from him. Listen to the question that God poses in Jeremiah 23. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? That's a rhetorical question, right? There is nowhere to hide. We find this threatening. He is inescapable. And we are threatened by this inescapable God before whom there is no such thing as privacy. We're people who love privacy. And the reality of God tells us that ultimately we don't have privacy. And we're threatened by this inescapability for good reason. Listen to what Psalm 90 verse 8 says. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. There's a reason to feel threatened, because our sins are exposed before the gaze of an ever-present God, and those sins deserve judgment. Our predicament is similar to the predicament of Israel when God is announcing their punishment for their covenant disobedience in Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. This is what God says, about the Israelites. He says, "'Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake "'and shatter them on the heads of all the people, "'and those who are left of them I will kill with a sword. "'Not one of them shall flee away. "'Not one of them shall escape. "'If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. "'If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down.'" If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, which is a mountain, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. There is nowhere to run and nowhere to hide from God. Ed Welch, a Christian author, summarizes the burden of God's omnipresence well when he says, we typically indulge our sin when we believe that no one sees. How do we know this? Well, notice what happens if someone actually catches us. We are embarrassed. We have a sudden sense of our guilt. What we tried to keep in the dark is now exposed in the light. The reality, of course, is that we are never in private. All our lives are lived out in the courts of the Lord. We are always seen and in the presence of the Holy One. Elsewhere, Welch concludes, if we feel exposed by people, we will feel devastated before God. Now that in mind, one might understandably wonder if David is celebrating or lamenting the fact that there is nowhere he can flee from God's presence in Psalm 139. But the Lord's complete and intimate familiarity with him seems to lead David to declare in verse 6 that this knowledge is too wonderful for him. Not too burdensome for him, not an annoyance to him, but too wonderful for him. If you look ahead in verse 14, we also see David offering praise to God. And so it seems like in 139, David is delighting in the fact That the one who has made him, formed him, fashioned him, knows him intimately, is ever present with him. But how? How could he be delighting in that fact? How can sinners who deserve judgment celebrate God's omnipresence? Well, here's how there's only one way to do it. But it's not running away from God. But there is one place and again I'm straining for words here there is one place you can run and hide from your guilt and your shame and your fear and your sin. But it's not from God. The one place that you can hide from your sin, guilt, shame and fear is by running to him. Because there is in the name of Jesus, you can run to him and find his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. That's the only way you can celebrate God's omnipresence and celebrate the benefits that flow from that. So let's look at that now, the benefits from God's omnipresence. What are some of these benefits that flow from God's omnipresence? I'm just gonna mention three this morning. First, there is encouragement or empowerment. God's omnipresence serves as a motivation for holy and obedient living. We've noted kind of already from the Welch quote how the presence of other people can help restrain sinful impulses, inclinations, and temptations, inclinations toward anger or gluttony or selfishness. Isn't it true that we're much less likely to give a full display of rage in public than we are in private? Because other people can serve as a restraining influence. And if that's true of other people, how much more should that be true of our ever-present God? This is how John Wesley puts it. He says, if you believe that God is about your bed and about your path and spies out all your ways, then take care not to do the least thing, not to speak the least word, not to indulge the least thought, Because as David says, he knows a word before it's even on our mouths. He knows our thoughts, which you have reason to think would offend him. Suppose only a holy man stood by you. Would you not be extremely cautious how you conducted yourself, both in word and action? How much more cautious ought you to be when you know that not a holy man, not an angel of God, but God himself is inspecting your heart, your tongue, your hand every moment. Second benefit from God's omnipresence is freedom. Because we live celebrating the presence of our God, we are set free from the fear of being quote unquote found out by other people. Listen, nobody can discover anything about you or your life that God doesn't already intimately know. And if you've run to him instead of from him, you also know that even though he knows that, he forgives you and he loves you still. And being secure in that, that God knows everything about you, the best and the worst, being secure in his knowledge of that and his love for you in that, you can live before others with honesty and transparency and vulnerability In humble confession of your remaining immaturity and your shortcomings and your flaws and your failures and your struggles and your sins. Instead of having to live in self-protection or defensiveness or pretending or reputation guarding. We're set free from all of that. I'll quote Ed Welch again. He says, to be exposed in God's presence should be much more difficult than being exposed before sinners like ourselves. People who truly confess to God are less concerned that others learn their secret. We're set free from that fear and we're set free from having to expend all of this energy to build up these facades before people. We're freed from having to expend energy to hide the gap or even create a gap between our public life and our private life. We don't have to do that because we live under the ever-present gaze of the God who loves us and has redeemed us, and is transforming us. Third benefit we can mention is comfort. God's omnipresence gives us comfort that we are never alone. You may be far from home this morning. You may be feeling very, very lonely. But you can know this, today in this hour, God is with you. Everybody else may have left you, But God is with you. Of course, you may be feeling that God has abandoned you and he's not with you. You may be in a very dark spiritual place this morning and you're feeling like God has forsaken you. But listen, he has not forsaken you. God has not forsaken you. If you've run to him instead of from him in the name of Jesus, he has not forsaken you. And we can know that because he's promised this in his word. Repeatedly, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. But we can also know this because Jesus has secured the benefits of God's omnipresence for us when he was forsaken in our place on the cross. And because Jesus was forsaken, we can know that if we're looking to the Father in the name of Jesus, he will never forsake us. When the Father turned his face away from Jesus in disfavor on the cross, he also turned his face toward you in everlasting favor. So I can't begin to explain God's plans for your life. I don't know why God has maybe put you in a dark place. You may not be sensing his presence, but know this. Even if you don't sense his presence, he is with you. He is with you. He's closer to you than the hairs of the, on the back of your neck are right now. Which, by the way, you're not conscious of their presence. I don't think. You're not feeling the hairs on the back of your neck. But they're there. The clouds can obscure the sun, but it's there. It's still there. And God is closer to you than those hairs on the back of your neck. And he's actually closer to you than you would ever dare imagine or dream. Because if your faith is in Jesus, he's not only with you, He's in you by his Holy Spirit. He has taken up residence in your heart so that he is in you and you are in him, united to him by faith in Jesus so that all of the love and the peace and the glory and the joy and the life and the fellowship that God enjoys in himself in his triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all those things he enjoys in himself, he shares with you. Because he is in you and you are in him. And so you have that life and that joy and that blessing and that glory in you. And you have that now, you have that everywhere, and you have that always and forever. This is the good news of God's omnipresence. So let's celebrate it the way David does in Psalm 139. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, you are beyond our thoughts in your greatness and your glory. We are finite. We cannot be in more than one place at one time, but you are everywhere. And Lord, we, we confess that we live at times as if that were not true. We, in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts, pretend that we can hide from you deliver us from that by your grace and teach us to hide in you and to celebrate the truth that you are with us. May that motivate us to holy living. May that set us free from being in bondage to fear in the face of others. And may that give us great comfort in the truth of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.